My name is Karen, and I'm a library branch assistant at Builders and Creators in Bessemer City. Please note that this episode contains depictions of violence and sexual content that some people may find disturbing. Today's podcast deals with three murders that happened in the Piedmont of North Carolina. Two of these cases I have indirect ties to. All of these were heinous crimes. What motivates someone to kill? Is it lust, greed, insanity, or a combination of all three? Our first case is centered on the murder of Russ Stager by his wife, Barbara. On February 1st, 1988, a call was received by a 911 operator in Durham, North Carolina. A frantic teenage boy on the other end of the phone uttered the words, Can you send an ambulance to 2833 Fox Drive? The 911 operator asked what was going on. The young man said, My father had a gun and it went off. Popular Durham High coach Russell Russ Stager lay bleeding on his bed with a gunshot wound to his head. His wife would say it was an accident, that he kept the gun under his pillow because he feared prowlers. But that would prove to be a lie. This was not an accident, and this was not the first time Barbara Stager had lost a husband to a gunshot wound. Barbara Terry was, by all accounts, a good girl. She worked hard in school, got good grades, and behaved herself following her Baptist upbringing. She was raised in Durham, North Carolina, the oldest of three children and the only daughter. Things changed when she went to college at the then Appalachian State Teachers College. She started dating Larry Ford, a sophomore, during her freshman year. By the spring, she was pregnant with their first child. She and Larry were married a week before classes ended. Barbara quit school while Larry continued his studies. Barbara and Larry's son was born in December of 1968. They would have another son in 1974. During their marriage, there were rumors of Barbara's infidelity, including an anonymous phone call to Larry one weekend when Barbara was supposed to be spending the weekend at her parents' beach house. A female voice asked Larry, Do you know where your wife is? There was no phone in the beach house, so Larry called the police and asked them to check on the house. They found it to be deserted. Barbara also loved the finer things in life. She would buy clothes and jewelry, things for the house, and nice cars. When they had a new house built, she wasted no time filling it with expensive furniture, accessories, and appliances. No one was quite sure where the money was coming from for all these things. Larry and Barbara were married almost 10 years before his death of what was then considered a quote-unquote accidental shooting. Larry was found in the bedroom on the bed with a bullet wound to his chest. There was blood on the sheet as well as on the top of Larry's nightshirt. The pistol was found on the floor and the loaded clip from the pistol was found close to his right hip. Barbara ended up receiving over $70,000 in life insurance payments for Larry's 
accidental death. She moved from Trinity, North Carolina, in Randolph County, back to Durham to live with her parents while she and her boys were getting settled. This is where she met Russ Stager, who would become her husband and her victim. Russ Stager was born just five months before Barbara in Durham, North Carolina. He was the oldest of Al and Doris Stager's two children. He was, by all accounts, a good guy. He married and divorced his college girlfriend. He was living in the house that he and his ex-wife shared in the same neighborhood as Barbara's parents' home when he met Barbara. He worked as an assistant coach and PE teacher for Durham County Schools. Russ and Barbara moved quickly once their romance started. They had dated only a month when they became engaged. Five days before the year anniversary of Larry Ford's death, they were married. Russ wanted a child of his own. Barbara had had her tubes tied after her youngest son was born, but did not tell Russ. She pretended to become pregnant and to suffer a miscarriage several times. Russ eventually adopted her sons. Barbara continued her pattern of either spending money on extravagant things or having affairs. At first, Russ would also spend extravagantly. They bought new cars, a new house, joined a country club, and even bought a boat. Eventually, he came to realize how deeply in debt they had become. They sat down with both sets of parents and devised a plan to help them get out of the financial mess they created. One of the plans was for Russ to take over all the bills. He got a post office box and had all the bills go there so Barbara could not hide them from him. Unfortunately, that did not work. Barbara would take the key from his key ring and intercept the mail. Once, Russ found a box of unpaid bills shoved out of sight under a chair in their living room. Barbara walked in on him with the box and confronted him about spying on her. He noted it was a very odd exchange. As far as her infidelities, Russ had caught Barbara with another man in a parking lot on the day of her grandmother's funeral. Barbara had left early that morning saying she needed to run some errands. Russ decided to take the car to the car wash before the funeral. After he had finished washing the car, he headed back home. On the way, he spotted Barbara's car all alone in the parking lot of Durham County Stadium. He couldn't figure out why her car was there and where she could be, so he parked in the parking lot across the street to observe. After a little while, a car pulled in the stadium parking lot and parked beside her car. Russ could see there was a man and a woman in the car. He watched on as the couple began kissing. He left his vantage point and drove over, startling the couple. Barbara quickly exited the car, and a man immediately sped off. Barbara also fabricated that a novel she was writing based on her first husband's death had been accepted by a publisher. She told everyone that she was expecting a $400,000 advance on the book. She even created an offer letter using a header from a rejection she had received to make a credible letterhead. She used the letter to secure a loan on a 90-day note. Friends started getting suspicious and questioned Barbara about the book. Its release kept getting quote-unquote delayed, according to Barbara, and therefore so did the money she said she was going to receive. In the end, one of those friends contacted a friend who worked at the publisher Doubleday, the publisher that Barbara claimed was publishing the book. 
The friend was informed that Barbara had not been offered a publishing contract. The friends decided that Russ needed to know. One of them invited Russ to coffee and told him as gently as possible that his wife was lying to him. There was no book and definitely no $400,000 advance. Russ and his ex-wife, JoLynn, made peace with their failed marriage and remained friends. Russ confided in JoLynn about the trouble in his marriage. Russ would stop by her house to talk when he was in Raleigh for his National Guard training weekends. During one of these visits, he told her about Barbara's first husband's death and that he had suspicions that she may have killed him. JoLynn assured him there had to have been an investigation that found it to have been accidental. Russ acknowledged that he might be a little paranoid, but told JoLynn, just promise me, if something happens to me, you'll look into it. And that is what JoLynn did. After Russ's death, she pushed the police to dig deeper. And when they did, Barbara's web of deceit became apparent. The police had Barbara reenact what happened the morning of Russ's shooting. She did not hesitate, which they thought was odd. In the end, the scenario that Barbara demonstrated to the police proved that what she had said had happened was not, in fact, what really happened. The trajectory of the bullet that caused Russ Stager's death came from above, not below. Barbara Stager was arrested for the murder of her husband on April 18, 1988. Two weeks before her trial began, the most damning piece of evidence was presented to the police. A mini-cassette tape had been found by a student in the locker room of the school where Russ Stager worked. On the tape was Russ Stager's voice talking about how Barbara had woken him up at 4.30 a.m. to give him what she said were aspirin. He stated that this was on January 28th, which was just a few days before he was killed. He said that he did not take the pills, but hid them from her. He stated on the tape that she normally would get up and out of the house before 7 a.m., but on this day, she was still in the bed. Russ said that before he got up, she was on his side of the bed looking for the pills and accusing him of not taking them. He made sure she didn't see them and stated that later that day he took the pills to Eckert's pharmacy and asked the pharmacist to identify them. The pharmacist said they were sleeping pills. Russ questioned on the tape if he was asleep at 4.30 in the morning, why was his wife waking him up to give him sleeping pills? He went on to talk about having to get a post office box and bills disappearing. He also talked about the incident the day of her grandmother's funeral when he caught her with a man. He questioned whether Barbara's first husband, Larry's death, was really an accident like she told him. At the end of the tape, he questioned whether he was being paranoid and signed off with the date and time, January 29, 1988, at 10 minutes of 2, just three days before he was killed. In the end... Barbara Stager was found guilty of first-degree murder on May 17, 1989, just 44 minutes after the jury left the courtroom to decide. She was sentenced to death on May 18, 1989. As in most cases where a defendant is sentenced to death, the case was referred to a higher court. Barbara was re-sentenced to life in prison in 1993 
and began serving that sentence on August 31, 1993. Barbara became eligible for parole in 2009. As of this podcast, she is serving her sentence in the North Carolina Correctional Institution for Women, located in Raleigh. She has been given some privileges outside the prison walls, they say, to acclimate her to today's world in case her parole gets approved. She is 72 years old. The summer of 1989 was a strange one for my hometown of Burlington, North Carolina. I was 21 and pregnant with my first child, living with my grandmother while my husband was out to sea. I took my grandmother to church every Sunday. Our minister had come to our church a few years before from Carolina United Church of Christ in the little village of Carolina close to the Hall River. I remember him asking us to keep the minister who replaced him there, Reverend Dwight Moore, in our prayers. Reverend Moore had become sick with various stomach ailments and they feared it was cancer. What it turned out to be was something truly horrendous. Reverend Moore had been poisoned with arsenic by his own wife. The next thing that Burlington knew, what seemed like half of Pine Hill Cemetery was being dug up to find out how far back the trail of Blanche Taylor Moore's treachery went. Blanche Taylor Moore was a striking woman, tall and slim and always impeccably dressed. She was the picture of what a minister's wife should be. On the inside, though, she was far from it. She was a preacher's daughter, but her father was not the kind of man who comes to mind when you think of a man of God. He would build up a church and take the offering, use it for drinking and gambling. It is reported that he used Blanche as currency to pay off his gambling debts. In the end, Blanche's mother divorced him, something that was unheard of at the time. Blanche married James Taylor of Burlington in May of 1952. A year later, they had their first child, a daughter. She also had another daughter with James in 1959. James was a good guy who was in the business of building fine furniture. He was considered kind of the black sheep in his family and liked to gamble at the local moose hall. The same year that her first daughter was born, Blanche took a job as a cashier at the Kroger on Church Street in Burlington. Blanche was a popular cashier. As pretty as she was, male customers would line up to go through her line. Women liked Blanche, too. They said she never forgot a face or a name. Blanche quickly rose through the ranks to become the head cashier in 1959. In those days, it was the closest a woman could get to a job with power in a grocery store. Women ruled the front of the store and the men managed from behind the scenes. It was at Kroger where Blanche met Raymond Reed. She would supposedly begin dating him before her first husband died in 1971. After her first husband, James, died, Blanche and Raymond began dating publicly and would continue off and on until his death in 1986. Raymond had wanted to marry Blanche, but she would never commit. During their relationship, there were several strange things that occurred. There were two fires at her home that were started in her bedroom using her underthings as fuel. Blanche claimed she had a stalker, and that was who started the fires. 
Blanche also filed a sexual harassment suit against Kroger and one of the higher-ups in the company, claiming that he had been harassing her and a few others for a long time. The final straw, she said, was that he cornered her one night in an upstairs conference room at the store she was working in. She claimed he made inappropriate advances towards her and made lewd comments, causing her to flee the store in a panic. In the lawsuit, she would say that she was so traumatized by the incident that she could not be with a man. All the while, she was secretly seeing Dwight Moore. Blanche was also still seeing Raymond Reed at this time. Raymond's health had started to decline. It started with what he thought was shingles. It then moved on into severe diarrhea, projectile vomiting, horrible abdominal pain, and nausea. Once he was hospitalized, he grew progressively worse. Blanche would see him every day and would bring him banana pudding and peanut butter milkshakes. She would bring the nurses on the floor their own banana pudding in a separate container. The milk and the food Blanche fed Raymond made it harder for his body to immediately reject the arsenic. The dose that finally killed Raymond Reed was given to him while he was in what was supposed to be the safety of the hospital. He died of what the doctor at the time believed was Guillain-Barre disease, but would later be found to have been poisoned. Raymond Reed died on October 7, 1986. With Reed's death came a small windfall for Blanche. He had left her a reported third of his estate. Less than a month later, Dwight Moore bought Blanche an engagement ring. In June of 1987, Blanche settled her lawsuit against Kroger for $275,000. Blanche and Dwight planned to get married in the fall of 1988, but Reverend Moore fell ill with severe gastric issues and was hospitalized. They finally married April 19, 1989. Shortly after their wedding, Dwight was hospitalized again for nausea and gastric distress. This is when Blanche's treachery started to come to light. On May 13, 1989, it was found that Dwight Moore had been poisoned with arsenic. Soon after, the police came to the hospital to talk with him. During this conference, he related to them about Raymond Reed's death. The police sought an order to have Reed's body exhumed. They would later also exhume the bodies of her first husband, James N. Taylor, her father, P.D. Kaiser, her mother-in-law, Isla Taylor, and Joseph Mitchell, a former co-worker who died in 1985. She was also suspected of poisoning her sister-in-law, Lillian Taylor Stewart, who died of an unknown illness but exhibited symptoms like arsenic poisoning. Her body was not exhumed. Blanche's father and mother-in-law's bodies had trace amounts of arsenic in them, but not enough to kill them. She was charged with first-degree murder in the deaths of Raymond Reed and James Taylor. After being convicted of murdering Reed, the first-degree murder charge regarding the death of her first husband was dropped. Blanche Taylor Moore was found guilty of the first-degree murder of Raymond Reed on November 4, 1990. She was sentenced to death. She is currently the oldest prisoner on death row in North Carolina at the age of 88. 
Cousins Fritz Klenner and Susie Newsom Lynch carried out one of the most gruesome crimes North Carolina's triad has ever seen. On June 3, 1985, they led the police on a low-speed chase that ended when the Chevy Blazer Fritz was driving exploded in Somerville, North Carolina, killing Klenner, Lynch, and Lynch's two young sons, Jim and John. It would later be revealed that the boys were likely already dead when the bomb went off. They had been poisoned with cyanide and shot in the head. How did this all start? No one really knows. Fritz was the son of Dr. Frederick Klenner and Annie Sharp Klenner. Dr. Klenner was renowned for his work using high doses of vitamin C to treat infections. His wife, Annie, was the sister of Susie Newsom Lynch's mother, Florence Sharp Newsom. There were seven years separating Susie, the elder of the two, and Fritz. They were not close growing up. Susie Newsom Lynch grew up in Winston-Salem. She was treated like a princess by her parents, Robert and Florence Newsom. Some would say she was quite spoiled and was prone to temper tantrums that would only stop when cold water was poured on her. After her graduation from high school, she enrolled in Wake Forest University, where she met her husband, Tom Lynch. Tom was from a wealthy Louisville, Kentucky family. When his mother, Dolores, met Susie, she took an instant dislike to her. She asked Tom not to propose to Susie, but he did anyway. Dolores and Susie allegedly argued on Susie and Tom's wedding day. After Tom graduated from Wake Forest, he was accepted to the University of Kentucky Dental School. The couple moved to Kentucky, and during the four years they lived there, they only saw Dolores once. Susie made no secret of the fact that she could not stand her mother-in-law. Susie and Tom's first child, John, was born in 1974 and their second child, Jim, was born in 1976. After Jim was born, Tom opened his dental practice in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Susie hated it there. She disliked being stuck at home while Tom worked long hours getting his practice up and running. Their marriage was crumbling, and finally, Susie took the boys back to North Carolina on the pretense of spending time with her terminally ill grandfather. She and the boys never returned to New Mexico. Susie did not stay in North Carolina for long. She and the boys moved to China for a while, where Susie taught English. She decided that she didn't like it there. She came back to North Carolina very thin and unwell. Her mother insisted she see her uncle, Dr. Frederick Klinner. Fritz Klinner was an expert at lying. He convinced his parents in the entire town of Reedsville that he was enrolled in Duke Medical School. He practiced medicine with his father, when in fact, he was unlicensed. There is no doubt that he was a skilled liar and can make almost anyone believe his wild tales. He told people that he had rescued his father from a perilous situation, that he was a Green Beret that had fought behind enemy lines in Vietnam and the lie he told to one naive man that he was a CIA operative doing dangerous undercover work. He had an apartment in Durham and one in Reedsville. He stayed at his place in Durham during the week so he could say he was going to class and doing his, quote, rounds at the hospital. 
His weekends were spent in Reedsville working at his father's clinic. He convinced his father that he was doing research with blood, and his father would send him blood samples from his patients for research. He would pass out, quote, stress pills and injections to his friends. In 1980, when Susie started coming to his father's clinic, Fritz reconnected with her, and they started spending time together. Susie and Fritz became inseparable. He would stay at her apartment all the time. She told the boys to call him Papa. He convinced Susie that Tom was cooking up a plan to kidnap the boys. She stopped allowing the boys to talk to their father when he called weekly. Or if they did speak to him, the calls were recorded by Fritz. There were specific visitation limits defined in the custody agreement. Tom could see the boys during holidays and for a few weeks during the summer. Susie would only let him see them during those times. When Tom did see the boys, they were withdrawn and had been given massive doses of vitamin C by Fritz. Tom Lynch took Susie to court to attempt to gain more visitation with his boys, but failed. When Dr. Klenner died in May of 1984, Fritz created a dramatic scene in the hospital, recounting the made-up scenario of how he valiantly but unsuccessfully tried to save his father's life. A family friend speculated that with his father's death, Fritz's mental state would decline. Susie was jealous of any time her boys spent with their father and his new wife, Kathy. She especially did not like it when Tom took the boys to visit his mother. On one of their trips to see their father in New Mexico, the family received devastating news. Tom's sister, Janie, and his mother had been found murdered at his mother's Kentucky home. To the police, it looked like a professional hit. Both women were shot several times at close range with a high-powered weapon. When asked that the boys spend additional time with their father so they could grieve with the family, Susie refused. Tom begins corresponding with Susie's parents, hoping to gain their help in getting more visitation and communication with their sons. They agreed with him that the boys needed to have a strong relationship with their father, and they would send pictures and letters to Tom regarding the boys. They agreed to testify on Tom's behalf for more visitation rights. In the end, it would be their death warrant. There was a young man that was a neighbor of the Clinners. His name was Ian. He was a bright 21-year-old who was attending Washington and Lee University in Virginia. Ian was also the best friend of my best friend's boyfriend. I never met Ian, but everything I heard about him from his friend was always positive. He and Fritz shared a love of American patriotism and a fascination with guns. Ian wanted nothing more than to pursue a career in government intelligence when he graduated from college. Fritz played upon this to get his help. He convinced Ian that he was an undercover CIA operative and that he needed his help to carry out his assignment. Ian's performance would determine whether Ian would be deemed worthy to carry out other missions. Ian was excited to help what he believed was his country's war on drugs. He would drive Fritz to a neighborhood in Winston-Salem where Fritz would assassinate members of a foreign drug ring. 
on May 18, 1985, at 11 p.m., Ian drove Fritz to an upscale neighborhood in Winston-Salem and dropped him off. A little over an hour later, Fritz met up with Ian. About a half a mile away, Susie Newsom Lynch's parents and grandmother lay dead. Ian was later questioned by the police regarding the deaths. He was Fritz's alibi, and he did what he was told. He said they were camping in Virginia on the night in question. When pressed, he revealed what Fritz had told him. He told them he was assisting Fritz on a CIA operation that had the Russian KGB involved. It was just a coincidence that it took place the same weekend that Susie's parents and grandmother were killed. The police realized that Ian really believed what Fritz had told him. They explained to him that Fritz was neither a doctor nor a spy. Fritz was a suspect in not only the murders of Robert and Florence Newsom and Robert's mother, Hattie, but also the deaths of Dolores and Janie Lynch in Kentucky. Ian was horrified. He agreed to help the police in any way he could. He would wear a recording device and try to get a confession or any incriminating information he could get from Fritz. Ian met with Fritz on three separate occasions while wearing a wire. The last time was on the fateful day, June 3, 1985, that would end everything for Fritz and Susie. Unbeknownst to Ian, the last time he sat in Fritz's blazer, he was sitting on top of a bomb. In his conversation with Fritz that afternoon, he got the closest thing to a confession there would be. Fritz told him he would write a letter stating that Ian knew nothing about what really happened on the night of May 18th. Fritz said that he would not see him again and that he had things to do. Just two hours later, Fritz would be dead. When Fritz left the parking lot where he had met Ian, he had unmarked police cars following him. They followed him to Susie's. His vague confession to Ian was enough for a judge to sign a warrant for his arrest. The apartment was surrounded by police, but they were at a distance. There were Forsyth County Sheriff deputies, detectives from the Kentucky State Police, and agents from the North Carolina Bureau of Investigation in attendance. The Greensboro Police Department sent a uniform officer to be available to make the arrest. Tommy Dennis was that officer. He did not know the specifics of the case, only that he was needed to help arrest a suspect. The officers on the scene stood by and watched Fritz and Susie load the blazer with what looked to be camping supplies. They watched as Susie, Fritz, John, Jim, and Susie's child dog climbed into the blazer and headed out of the apartment complex. As they got to the main road, a police officer pulled in front of Fritz and attempted to stop him. Other officers surrounded the car and identified themselves. Fritz drove onto the curb and went around them. Tommy Dennis made a U-turn to get to the blazer in his squad car with his blue lights on. There were two unmarked cars that also made the U-turn to follow. One of them passed Officer Dennis, causing him to skid and run into the passenger side door of the blazer. When Officer Dennis looked up over the hood of his car into the passenger window, he was shaken to see Fritz Klinner pointing a 9mm Uzi at him. Fritz smiled at him and then fired. 
Officer Dennis was luckily wearing the bulletproof vest his wife insisted he wear any time he was on duty. Five bullets went into his squad car. One struck him in the chest and one hit his belt buckle. Fritz continued to spray the officers with machine gun fire. One of the Kentucky officers was hit. Somehow, Fritz was able to get away, even though it seemed he was boxed in. He was again followed by the police. He drove slowly before turning towards Somerville on NC-150. He stopped once more and fired. Then as the blazer sat there, a few clicks were heard, and the blazer exploded. The officers ran to the scene. They found the boys and the dog still upright in the back seat. Fritz had been thrown clear from the car and was still alive. One of the detectives from Kentucky leaned over him to speak, hoping for a deathbed confession. But Fritz just gurgled and died. It was the end. The only players in this story that remain were Tom Lynch and Ian. They live with the aftermath every day. If you would like to read more about these cases, we do have books about each. The book, Before He Wakes by Jerry Bledsoe is about the Russ Stager case. Preacher's Girl is by Jim Schutz and is about Blanche Taylor Moore. And there are two books about Fritz Klinner and Susie Newsom Lynch. One is Bitter Blood by Jerry Bledsoe and the other is Deadly Kin, a true story of mass family murder by William Trotter and Robert Newsom III.